So we have that uh, tradition of where the kids come and they uh, pick up all the coats. And for those of you guys who are um, unfamiliar with that, uh, what we do with those coats is that we, we gather those coats and we uh, take them to the Riverside City Mission and we uh, donate them and give them to people uh, who can have, uh, make better use of them and who are in need of them. Um, so our poor Pastor Cliff is still sick today. He was sick last week. We can just hope and pray that he's going to be better um, by Easter. Um, but he called me on Friday and asked me to fill in for him uh, this morning. And so uh, the funny part is between now or between then and now, I started to get sick myself. And so I have a runny nose. And so I want to apologize ahead of time. If I sneeze into the microphone, I'm really sorry. Uh, my sneezes sound violent enough as they are. I can't imagine what they're going to sound like projected across the sanctuary. But I will try to guard you from that as best I can. Um, so in my freshman year of college, um, I dated this girl. Uh, I don't really know why I dated her. Uh, I guess I thought she was pretty at the time, but really, we, there were so many things about us that were just not similar. We were just very different people. Um, I was always a very deep thinker, I've always have been, uh, and in college I, I remember I wrestled with a lot of uh, the big questions that people usually do uh, in their late teens and early 20s, you know, asking questions about meaning of life, thinking about God, the universe, the Bible, Jesus, and I remember I would uh, engage these conversations with her and I would ask her about what she thought about it and I would tell her about the books I'm reading and the things I'm thinking about, uh, and every time I would ask her, what do you, what do you think about that? And I would look at her, and there was just this stare at me of pure boredom, uh, that she wanted the conversation to be over 15 minutes ago. Uh, and and it's just this, this obvious that we just were not similar. She was a smart girl. She just, neither one of us had the same types of interests. Well, needless to say, um, our, our relationship had some rocky spots. Uh, we didn't really, uh, relationship really wasn't that good. It wasn't even very long. And I remember at one 4th of July party, my parents always threw these big 4th of July parties, and there was at one of these parties, uh, I started talking to a girl who I had never spoken to in my life. Uh, and I just asked her, I said, hey, uh, can you give me some relationship advice? And I asked her about, uh, you know, whether or not should I really be dating this girl who, who I don't share interest with? Uh, should I keep this relationship going? And I remember how well she listened to me and how thoughtful she was, and that was always something that stood out to me. Well, I broke up with my girlfriend, and years later, uh, I started a conversation with this girl who gave me advice. We'll call her Advice Girl. Uh, and she, uh, I started this conversation with her on Facebook. I sent her a message just saying hi. Um, we talked for hours, and hours, and hours, and, and it, was, it was obvious that there was just this connection between us. Long story short, I ended up dating this girl, I proposed to this girl, and I married this girl. Uh, but I, I, we often look back at this, Nicole and I often look back at this, and we think about um, how funny this is, right? I, I was asking advice about another relationship from a girl who I would eventually mar- end up marrying. Right, but I think back, I think, what if... Uh, what if I knew who I was talking to that night? That night I was asking for advice. What if I, 
What if I knew that this girl who I'm talking to, while I'm talking about another girl, that this girl I was talking to was the girl I would end up marrying? Um, I think a lot would have been different, right? I, I wouldn't have cared about that other relationship. I would have been pouring so much into that other girl. Things would have been different. Right? I dated another girl uh, after this, that girl, and so I probably wouldn't have been doing that. Right? A lot of things would be different. Right? And this just kind of goes to show uh, that it's important we know who we are talking to. Or sometimes, if we knew who we were talking to, things would be really different. If we knew who we were talking about, things would be really different. And I think there is nowhere where this is more true than it is with Jesus. Who is this man, Jesus, that we talk about? Whether you're a Christian or not, I'm sure you hear his name a lot. Jesus is kind of a popular guy. You'll see him on the programs about him on the History Channel, on the Discovery Channel. You'll see him in the, on the on magazines. You'll see him everywhere. People are talking about him. Who is this? It's all just, let's just say, I mean, Jesus is kind of a big deal, but who is this man? Who is this man that there are 2.1 billion people in the world who follow him? Who is this man who raises headline news constantly? Who is this man who has more books written about him than anyone else or anything else in the world? Who is he? And today I want to explore that question a little bit more uh, in the context of Jesus' triumphant entry. But before we do, uh, let me start us off with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we, um, we open up this time to you, Lord, and we ask that you speak uh, through me. We ask, God, that you open our hearts, you challenge us, you convict us today. Help us to experience you, help us to see you in a new light. Help us to think about your word and be guided by it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, Lord, our rock and redeemer. pray this in your name. Amen. So in church history, typically uh, Palm Sunday has always been the day we celebrate what is known as Jesus' triumphant entry. And this really marks the beginning of the end of Jesus' ministry here on earth. And in the course of eight days, Jesus does a lot of things. He enters Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, he challenges the religious leaders, he institutes the Lord's Supper, is arrested, tried, executed on a cross, and then raised from the dead. And you thought your week was busy. Right, a lot happens here, but it all begins with Jesus entering into, the, 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 into Jerusalem. Uh, but, it, but this story is more than just that. It's more than just Jesus walking through the gates. What happens here is it also points to who he is. This, this couple of verses is one scene, is one act, a part of an entire symphony that works together to show us who Jesus is. This story directs our understanding of who this man is, who this popular, controversial an influential man is. And this is what we're going to be talking about today. And so turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew 21, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. And now listen to the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and 
came to Bethphage in the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill that was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughters of Zion, Behold, your king is coming. To you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and full of a beast of burden. Now, there are, uh, a, there's a lot going on here, but I want to highlight really two things, two important things here. Uh, first, uh, Jesus calls himself Lord. Right, the Greek word there is kurios, uh, and, it's, and it's very interesting because uh, up until this point in time, um, a lot of people have called Jesus Lord. It was something a lot of people said very easily. They would call him out, Lord, Lord. Uh, but Jesus had never identified himself as Lord. Now, he uses this word, curious, a couple of times, actually a lot of times in the book of Matthew. But he always uses it when he's talking about God. For Jesus, there is one Lord, and that is God. And a lot of other people use this word Lord very frequently, very easily, but Jesus doesn't. Up until this point, he has never called himself Lord, yet here he calls himself Lord. And this is a very powerful point. Jesus is identifying himself with God. This is, this is a part of a lot of other things that he does. It's just subtly showing who he is. Right? So through the course of the book of Matthew, we see several things. Right? So he forgives sins. There's this great scene in, in Scripture where somebody, he's forgiving someone's sins, and somebody, a, a religious leader, asks, right, oh, why are you forgiving sin? And Jesus says, right, who has the authority to forgive sins? And they respond, only God. Then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Right, Jesus performs these great miracles, right, including raising someone from the dead, something that only God had authority to do. Jesus calls God Father, and God the Father, during Jesus' baptism, calls Jesus his beloved Son. There's just these slew of things throughout the book of Matthew that is just pointing us, helping us understand better who this man is. And so here... Jesus calls himself Lord, Curios, a word, a name that Jesus only uses when he's identifying and talking about God. And of course, the second thing that we can point out from this passage here, um, or the second thing I want to point out about this passage, is that Jesus fulfills a prophecy, a, a prophecy that is found in the book of Zechariah. Now, this prophecy is very, very important to Israel. This prophecy, along with uh, many others that are just pointing uh, to us this Messiah, this coming Messiah. Uh, and to best understand it, we have to make sure we understand where Israel is coming from at this point. Right? And so I'm going to give us a quick, brief snapshot of, of, of Israel's history, the last 500 years or so of Israel's history leading up to this point. Um, if you remember, towards the end of the Old Testament, Israel really started to sin. Right? They really started to fall into some deep sin. Um, uh, after King Solomon, right, uh, or the third king of Israel, after his death, 
the Israel was divided into two parts, right? Kind of, they turned against each other into a northern and a southern kingdom. And over the course of about 400 years or so, these two kingdoms just grew deeper and deeper in sin, worshiping these other nations' uh, false gods, completely forgetting God's laws and God's rules for them. They started assimilating themselves with these other nations, doing all the things God had asked them not to do. Israel was in deep sin. And God sent these prophets, right? Many of these books in our Bible, the, the prophets, are written during this time. And they're just urging Israel, repent, change, repent, stop, stop sinning. But Israel does not listen. And so it speaks, and so God uh, lifts himself, right? He removes himself from Israel. And it says that he hands them into the hands of these other nations. And so Israel is conquered nation after nation. Their sin, idolizing these false gods of other nations, eventually leads them into captivity by these other nations. And this plays along with a very popular theme that we see in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Judges. Um, You see this, that Israel worships these other gods, these other foreign gods, uh, of these other nations. And eventually what happens is the nations who those gods belong to often conquers them. So buried behind that, there's just this point that our idols eventually enslave us. That's what's happening here, is that Israel was conquered by these other nations, first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, then by the Persians, then by the Greeks, and now finally by the Romans. And this is where Israel is at right now. They're under the rule of the Roman Empire. And while God had restored them a little, letting them live in Jerusalem again, Israel is still living under and being oppressed by these other nations. This, this is a humility, uh, a place of humility for, for Israel. This is not where they want to be. And so for hundreds of years, Israel has been hopeful, praying that God would send them, send them a king, a messiah. Christ. And the word Messiah, Christ, uh, they mean the same thing. Messiah comes from Hebrew, Christ comes from uh, Greek, but it means anointed one. And that refers to the one that God would raise up to save Israel, to save and to lead Israel, to free them from their bondage. Israel was looking for a Messiah to save them from their own sin and brokenness. Now, at the time, many Jews thought that that it would literally be a king who's going to raise up an army and fight off the Romans. God had something different in mind. But the fact that Jesus fulfills this prophecy and so many other prophecies that he fulfills throughout the gospel, throughout his life, shows us that Jesus is the Messiah that Israel was waiting for. Even more than that, this isn't uh, clear in this passage, but it's clear throughout the rest of the uh, New Testament. Uh, Jesus is not just the Messiah they've been waiting for. He is the Savior that the world needs. And since the beginning of Israel, uh, God has had this promise that through them, 
through Israel, through Abraham's descendants, he will bless the whole world. We find this, this promise that God gives Abraham, the father of all of Israel, in, in chapter 12, verses 2 through 3 in Genesis. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then he later says, uh, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That through Israel, which is where uh, Jesus is born and comes from, God will bless the world. And we see another promise within David, and this is why, as we read a little further in this story in Matthew, um, this is why people shout out, uh, the son of David, the son of David, that's why they call him this. It's because Jesus is, is a descendant from David. And, and God made this promise to David. He said, um, from your offspring, I will raise one up who will be punished for sins, who I will call son, and he will call me father, who I will love, and through him I will establish my kingdom forever. And so there is this, this, there's this embedded within Israel, there is this hope that through them, through Israel, that God was going to raise up one who will bless all the earth and who will establish his kingdom, God's kingdom, forever. Jesus is not only the Messiah that the world, or that the Messiah that Israel was waiting for, Jesus is the Savior that the world needs. Jesus is God's way of blessing all the families of the earth. Jesus is God's way of establishing his kingdom forever. But up until now, we really are only getting a glimpse of who Jesus is uh, by what he's saying of himself. And so as we read on in the story of Matthew 21, uh, we're going to see what do other people say of Jesus? Uh, uh, Who is Jesus according to to the rest of the people? So uh, let's read uh, Matthew 21, 6 through 11. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from their trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is the highest. And when he enters Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. As Jesus makes his entry into Jerusalem, these crowds are gathering around and just shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And for the crowds to shout Hosanna, there's only really one thing that this can mean. Um, the, the, the actual the word Hosanna has two different meanings, but they work together uh, in, in a very meaningful way. Um, the word Hosanna, the, the, actually the etymology of it, like how the word is put together, it literally means save us. So those people are crying out, save us, save us, save us. All right, but the other thing that the word also refers to is it's, it's like an exclamation of praise or a recognition of rulership. I think of like, um, of like Rome, right? They would, a Roman centurion would say, Hail Caesar. Or you might think of other monarchies 
in the world. You know, I think of England when a when a new a new king rises to power, they would they would claim "Long live the king!" Right. So there's just this exclamation of recognition of you are and you are ruling, but also they're saying, "Save us!" Right. Uh, these crowds are shouting Hosanna because they believe Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. He is the Christ. He is the one sent by God to save them. But notice, uh, not everyone in Jerusalem is crying out, Hosanna. And this is just it. People respond to Jesus in different ways. Of course, there are these crowds, these people who shout out, Hosanna, who just praise him. And there are the disciples, uh, the ones who have left everything in their life and are following him. And of course, there are the religious leaders. We don't see them here in this passage, but we see them throughout, uh, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, throughout all of the Gospels. They're constantly fighting Jesus. Actually, in fact, uh, in verse 15, uh, he responds to, or sorry, the, the, uh, these religious leaders, when they hear these crowds saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, it says that they are indignant. These re- religious leaders, they never liked Jesus. They were always testing him, always fighting him, always scheming against him. But that's just it. That's just how it is. People respond to Jesus differently. Some people respond to Jesus like the disciples did, by obeying him, by following him. We see that these disciples, eventually, they believed and they put so much hope in Jesus that they eventually die for him, most of them die for him. Almost all of them die for him. Right? Some people are willing to stand back and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. Yet I wonder, where are these people when he is tried, when he is arrested, when he is executed? It is easy to say that someone is Lord when it doesn't cost you anything. It's easy to believe in Jesus when you don't have to make any serious sacrifices. But I have a feeling that many of these people, that much of this crowd, got really quiet when Jesus was arrested. The moment their faith was tested, put to the test, they were not willing to shout praise to Jesus anymore. There are many people like that today. People who are willing to say Hosanna when things look good, but seem to be quiet the moment their faith gets dangerous, risky, or costly. Then uh, there are these religious leaders. These people respond to Jesus differently too. They resist him at every turn. Like many people today, the Pharisees... Uh, disliked Jesus because they challenged, because he challenges their worldview. He challenges their wants. Their idea of what religion ought to look like, their idea of what, what they want and how life ought to be, doesn't match up with Jesus. So they fight him. They resist him. But there's one group of people I have yet to mention. In verse 10, it says that the whole rest of the city, a lot of people, were stirring up, asking, who is this? 
Who is this man who claims to be the Messiah, who forgives sins, who works these great miracles? Who is this that gets crowds to follow him shouting Hosanna? Who is this who makes, the en- makes enemies out of the religious leaders? Who is this? And this isn't a deeply important question, even for us today. The question for those who are curious, for those who are asking, who is Jesus? They see Jesus everywhere. As I said, he's a very popular guy. They might have friends who are Christians. They know these religious holidays that come up. And hopefully they continue to ask themselves, who is this? Who is this Jesus? It's a question I hope Christians continue to ask themselves. They continue to think about. Who is this man that I choose to follow? It's a question that I can only hope that the skeptics continue to ask. Who is this? I think the question, who is Jesus, is perhaps one of the most important questions anyone can ask. For if Jesus is who the crowd says he was, if Jesus is who the disciples says he was, if Jesus is who he said he was, then that changes everything. If Jesus is King, Messiah, and Savior, then there is no area in my life or in your life or in anyone else's life that goes unchanged, or that should be unchanged. The question, who is Jesus, is incredibly important. Uh, John Ortberg, the pastor of uh, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, uh, he has this, this, this idea I've always liked, that he, this way of just thinking about how popular Jesus is. He, he didn't actually come up with it. Uh, a couple of his historians of Jesus did, but he's really kind of made it more popular but he said, suppose somehow we invented or we discovered this super magnet, this super net magnet that we could just hover over Earth. And this magnet would suck up and pull up everything that has any scrap of Jesus in it anywhere. Anywhere in its history, uh, Jesus comes up. Basically, it pulls up everything that Jesus somehow influenced. Right? And so, so if there was a Christian who was inspired to build something for the sake of God's kingdom, then whatever he built, that would get sucked up. Right? And so this question is, is how much of the world would get pulled up? How much of the world would just get sucked up by this super magnet? Uh, or perhaps a better way of thinking about it is how much would be left? Think about it. Right? Uh, people throughout history have done amazing deeds in the name of Jesus. Hospitals, colleges, developments in science, philosophy, geometry, calculus, civil movements, social justice trends, developments in health sciences. Even names can be traced back to Jesus. Many, many names in America uh, somehow are rooted in the Christian faith. And this idea should just cause us to think how much influence Jesus has had on this world. There's a different way to think about it. The historian H.G. Wells, uh, he's a popular fiction writer uh, back in the day. Uh, but he was actually, more than that, he was a historian, um, and actually a well, pretty well-cited historian. He talked a lot about Jesus. Actually, it was just this last week I was reading a book on the historical Jesus, and I thought it was interesting that they, they talked about him, they cited him. 
Uh, But this is what he says. He says, uh, I am a historian. I am not a believer. Right here, he's trying to, uh, he's trying to get, give us a, a, a hint of where he's coming from. Uh, he's not saying this as a Christian. He's just trying to hype up Jesus. He's saying this as a historian, as an academic mind. But he says, but I must confess, as an historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. When we just stop and think how popular, how influential, how much this man has impacted our modern world, I think it brings us to the question that those in Jerusalem asked 2,000 years ago. It brings us to the question, who is this man? Who is this man who has changed the world? C.S. Lewis has always helped me in thinking about this. Um, he, says, he has this idea that he says that uh, it, given that Jesus said the types of things he said, and he makes these great claims about himself being God, about forgiving sins, about being the Messiah, given that he said all these things, we are really uh, much more limited on what we can say or, or who we can say Jesus actually is. Right, so a lot of times I hear, and this is very popular today, I've heard this many, many, many times on college campuses, on Starbucks, everywhere. Right? People will talk about, oh, I, I think Jesus was just a great moral teacher. He was just this great philosopher. He was just this great thinker, this great mind. Uh, I, I don't think he was God. I don't think... He was the Messiah. I don't think anything like that. I just think he was this good moral, moral teacher. And to that, this is what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was and merely a man... Uh, a man who was merely a man and said this sort of things, Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with this patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is known as Lewis's trilemma. And as I said, Jesus said a lot of really radical things. He said he was God. He said he was the Messiah. He said that he was the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He performed these great miracles and taught some pretty radical things. With that, there is no way Jesus is just a moral teacher. We can't downgrade him to that. There is no way he is just some great philosopher. 
we have a couple of options. Lewis gives us three options, and I don't think there's any other possible options. I, I think this is it. So the first option is that Jesus is a liar. Jesus knew what he was saying, and he was lying about it. For whatever reason, he just thought, I'm just going to go around lying about all this stuff. I'm going to go around trying to persuade all, the, all these people that, I am, that I, am this, I am God. He's willing to die for those lies. And all these people are just, just fall to him thinking that he is a liar, or not thinking, not realizing he's a liar, that there's all these gullible people just surrounding him. Deep down inside, Jesus was just some malicious person with ill will. And he has successfully pulled off the greatest lie in human history and changed the world because of it. That's your first option. The second option is that he is a lunatic. As Lewis says, right, he, he's on the same level with that of a person who calls himself a poached egg. And for whatever reason, Jesus was able to get these great crowds to follow him. These disciples to just sacrifice everything for him. To sacrifice their own lives for him. And no one realizes that he's crazy. That he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. That's your second option. Your third option, and your final option, is that you say he is who he said he was. You actually believe that Jesus truly was the Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent by God, the Lord, the Lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus couldn't have just been a great moral teacher, given that he said and did the things he uh, he did. He couldn't have just been a prophet. This is how uh, C.S. Lewis ends his thought uh, about this trilemma. That's what he says. Does it now, it seems to me, obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept I have to accept this view that he was and is God. How do you answer the question, who is this? Are you like the moral teachers, the moral leaders, who just want to fight Jesus because they don't like what he has to say? They don't like the implications of his message. They don't like the fact that that means they have to stop doing what they're doing and do something different. They don't like that it takes them out of the focus and it puts him in focus. They don't like that. They don't want to change their ways. Are you like the crowds? You just stand out in the back and just say, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise Jesus. But only say it when it's easy and not costly. Is your faith and hope in Jesus just superficial? Or are you like the disciples? Do you not only praise Jesus and shout Hosanna, but you change your lives because of it? That you come to him on your knees and call him Lord and change everything in your life for his sake. If you call Jesus Lord, don't ever stop asking the question, who is this? Because the more we investigate this man, 
and who he is, the more we are inspired, challenged, and changed by him. On, On a personal level, I can say I think my faith is weakest when I am not dwelling on who Jesus is. I am most scared when I forget that Jesus has overcome the world. I am most restless when I forget that Jesus has given us eternal hope. I am most useless when I forget the radical call that Jesus gave each of us. I am most useless as a Christian when I forget who Jesus is. And I am most useful when all I can think about is how Christ is Lord. One more time. I am most useless as a Christian when I forget who Jesus is, and I am most useful when all I can think about is how Christ truly is Lord. If Jesus isn't Lord of your life, then I invite you to think about this question, who is this, a little bit more. I invite you to talk to someone about it. Talk to one of your friends who's a Christian. Talk to one of the elders, the pastors at this church. Wrestle with this question. Jesus is a big deal. But if Jesus is Lord over your life, then let that be known to the world. Don't just shout Hosanna from the distance. Don't be two-faced about it. Let Jesus rule your life. Let there be no domain in your life that is unchanged by him. Let him be Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day and God, for the opportunities you give us day in and day out to think about you. Father, I ask that uh, these words, that your words, challenge us and that they move us and that they inspire us. Father, that you just continue to whisper into our hearts and our minds And you let us be changed by you. Father, we love you and we praise you. And as believers and as followers and as disciples of you, we all say together,